Well, it is so good to be with you all here in Sunnyside, Queens. I'm very excited about my lunch plans later because, let's be honest, Queens has the best food. Um, yes, yes, sorry. There's, it, there's no competition when you're coming from Roosevelt Island and saying that because we have, like, three options. Um, but this new year started off in our home um, with some construction. Over the last week, we decided that we were going to take our gigantic three-story triple bunk beds and take those down. We have six kids. Take those down and instead put up a combination of smaller bunk beds and lofts and just kind of move our kids into this new phase. And so where do you go to get furniture for kids, right? Where's the only place in New York that you ever should go to get furniture? Ikea, that's right, because we hate ourselves, and so we go to Ikea. you got to psych yourself up, right, when you are going to build something from Ikea. I actually was standing at the, the checkout, waiting in line, looking at the hundreds of other suckers who were standing there, but I was looking at them thinking the same way I did when I was pregnant with my first child, being like, well, there's nothing so special about you, and so if you're able to do this, well, then I should be able to do this. Okay, I, I got this, right? And sure enough... I'm on the second set of bunk beds. After about five hours of Allen wrench twisting, I actually had a bruise in my hand from this, and I'd gone through all of the steps, and I assumed that I knew what I was doing because I had been following the instructions, and so I was like, you know what? I can set these aside because I've built these five panels that are all the same way. So this sixth one, I don't need to pay any attention anymore. I know what I'm doing now. And I just went kind of with my gut instinct and kept going. And I got to the point where you kind of put everything together, and it didn't fit. I had made a mistake. Somewhere along the process, I had done something wrong. And so what did I have to do? Deconstruct it. I had to go backwards through the steps and figure out where it was that I had made a mistake, where something was flipped around backwards, where I hadn't read it clearly because I could have probably forced this thing to come together. I could have, you know, found some duct tape or something, but the reality is once my teenage boys got up on top of that thing, it would have collapsed under the weight of them. I needed to go back and determine where I went wrong and change it and rebuild it with the right foundation so that it could sustain the weight that I needed it to hold up. And so this is, this winter, what we're talking about at Mosaic. We're talking about this deconstruction, where many of us, we've built up our spiritual lives with assumptions and ideas that maybe we've gotten from pastors and churches through the years. Maybe it's just been from our pop culture. Maybe it's been from our parents. But as we've gone through life and we've lived more experiences, we've gotten some new information we face some strenuous challenges. We're going, I don't know that this faith is going to hold up anymore. There may be some places in here that I've gotten some things wrong or I've just gone with it and now I'm seeing this doesn't fit together anymore. And so we need to go back and we need to kind of pull the pieces apart and go, are there maybe some wrong assumptions in here? Are there some things I've just assumed are true that maybe actually aren't? Because we all want and we need a faith that can sustain us. 
We need a faith that can get us through these ridiculous times that we are living in. And so that's what we're going to be doing over these next few weeks is we're going to be sharing with you some of the foundational paradigms that we believe here at Mosaic. And these paradigms have come through times of going, okay, wait, I maybe kind of assumed this or I had believed this. I don't know that that's really true. What is true? And digging down a little bit deeper to uncover what we truly believe about our faith. And so today, we're starting with what I believe is potentially the most foundational paradigm to our faith. And it has to do with our very perception of the character of God. What our view, what our image of God is, is a very, very powerful lens that shapes how we approach our entire lives. It's often this kind of unconscious undercurrent that's going along under everything else. But the image that you have regarding the character and the nature of God, God's true essence, it influences your decisions, it influences your motives for your spirituality, it influences how you engage with other people. I realize there are whole organizations that I have images of that maybe are true, maybe aren't. When it comes to any government agency of any sort, I am convinced that they are out to get me doing something wrong. I don't care whether it is a permitting office or TSA or a police officer or IRS. I am convinced that somehow they're going to catch me doing something wrong and I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. I don't know why I believe this. I am not saying it's true. It's not to rag on any government agency. This is just somehow some assumption that I have, and it impacts any time I'm standing in line to go through TSA. I start getting sweaty. I'm fumbling. I make myself look like I'm a target, and I'm doing something wrong because I'm convinced they're going to get me. Anytime I'm driving and I see a police officer, I'm like, I could be going five miles an hour under the speed limit. I typically am not, but I could be, and I'd be like, that's it. They're taking away my license forever. But I have this perception, and it forms how it is that I live my life. My kids have perceptions of who I am and my character as a parent. I have some children who really do believe that I have their best interest in mind. And I'm going to care for them. And so they trust me. And they actually kind of come clean when they screw up, and they ask for things that they want And then I have other kids, those who are getting older, most of them, who aren't so sure anymore that I have their best interest in mind. And so when I make a suggestion or they look at me like, really, mom? Our view of God has an even stronger influence on our life, depending on what our picture of God is, what this image that we have in our head of the character of God It will dramatically impact how we deal with disappointment and tragedy, how we deal with success and achievement, how we plan and shape our desires. It all impacts that. And so today what we want to do is take this kind of unconscious undercurrent that we all have and bring it to the surface and examine where is it maybe we have a misconception of the character and nature of God that we need to deconstruct a bit. And so I'm going to start kind of with the up here of what is it that we believe at Mosaic about what our lens for viewing God should be. 
What is our primary image of the character of God? And the passage today is from Hebrews chapter 1. It says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And so this is our lens that we believe is true here at Mosaic, that God is Christ-like, and in him there is no unchristlikeness at all. N.T. Wright says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. Brian Zond, an author and pastor, says, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. And for many of us who have grown up in the Christian faith, we might believe in the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but often we keep Jesus separate from God. We like the idea of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, but it doesn't translate to our view and our image of God. Instead, our paradigm has been influenced by our culture and even our country with this strong Greek influence, right? We think of Zeus more up in the sky. You've got the person of Jesus, but then you've got Zeus who's sitting on the mountaintop ready to zap you with lightning. Kind of like that cop feeling I have And so then we think, well, we need to appease the gods. We've also been influenced by our families. God is often referred to as our heavenly father. And so our earthly fathers, whether good or bad or absent, heavily influence our image that we have of God and become something very different than God is like Jesus. And so I'm going to quickly walk us through four potential misconceptions of God that I would say the majority of us default to. And then we'll show how it is that Jesus rehabilitates and reconstructs those misconceptions. The first misconception that we have about God is that God is absent. We call this God the distant deity. Kind of believe he kicked off creation and then sort of set it in motion, not really intimately involved. God is a concept, detached, sure, powerful, but not around. And functionally, this is how so many of us live. This is kind of what our everyday practice shows that we suspect to be true about God. Someone who, sure, has ultimate authority, but has little to nothing to do with my everyday life. This view has this very religious, where we have this truncated, compartmentalized life, where we'll come to church, and we'll do the church thing, and it's great, and then... The rest of our life shows no connection to God. This often, though, can leave us to feel like we are fending for ourselves and striving. This is where then when things go bad, we find ourselves making deals with this God. We can only get his attention with grand gestures because he's so far away. 
He couldn't possibly care about what's going on with us. And most of us, we wouldn't profess that we actually believe this, but as Dallas Willard says, one of the greatest difficulties for Christians is to actually believe what we say we do. Not just profess, but trust. So why don't we pray? Well, because if it's a distant deity, we don't believe it really matters. He's out there. He kind of likes me. But I don't interact with this God unless I really need something. So that's the first, that God is absent, a distant deity. The next potential misconception is that God is angry. God is a demanding judge. That's what we call this God. He is very involved, but you don't necessarily want him to be. He's constantly frustrated by our lack of performance. He's trying to get you to obey. The posture that this God has towards you is, what is wrong with you? Why can't you just get it together? This God is primarily concerned with your morality and your purity. If you offend this God, you are cut off and you need to grovel to get back into graces with him because forgiveness isn't cheap. This God uses shame and guilt and fear as motivators for us to behave well. This is the God who many people have walked away from church or who've never come to church in the first place because this is the picture they have in their minds. So when we have this view of God, if life doesn't go the way we intended it to, we are full of shame, convinced that it was something that we've done to deserve whatever misfortune has come our way. Or if things are going well, it's like, okay, well, I must be doing something good. I don't want to upset the apple cart and, and have my life go the wrong way now. The demanding judge God doesn't really like us. We're just there to receive love laden with conditions and guilt. So you have the absent God. You have the angry God. And then kind of on the opposite side of the spectrum, there's the awesome God. This is, we call this God the doting grandfather, right? This is a lot of people, when they've given up on the demanding judge God, they swing the pendulum the whole other way. And they're like, well, maybe God just, just wants every possible great blessing for me ever. He's the guy who always has an ice cream cone for you. You ask for 10, he gives you 20. I actually had a grandfather who was kind of like this. He would show up regularly after school, take me to the local diner for a hot fudge brownie sundae. He thought I was amazing, and he told me I was going to be the first woman president of the United States, and I believed him for a very, very long time. He was very off. Um, he was not living in reality. But this God, this doting grandfather God, this awesome God, he indulges you. He enables you to conceive and get your greatest desires. His greatest good for you is to get whatever you want when you want it. Kind of like a Santa Claus in the sky. Just wants to give you health and wealth. Self-esteem life coach. And this is appealing, right? I mean, if I'm going to have a false view of God, this is the one that I want. But this God, this picture of God keeps us focused 100% on ourselves. And if there's any difficulty or suffering that comes in our lives, well, then we bail. We need to get out of it. If something in our life is challenging, we can't possibly see that as God's work in our life. Because our precious doting grandfather, God, wouldn't let that happen to us. So you've got the absent, the angry, the awesome and the last potential misconception I'll talk about today is the all-controlling God. We call this God the deterministic micromanager. 
This is someone who is in meticulous control of all things, the weather, the plans, whether or not you get a parking spot. God is in control of everything. And this is an image that often people cling to because when God is in control of my job, my housing, my relationships, potentially then I don't need to worry. But then it also means that God is in control and has caused sickness and death. People will use the phrase, there's a purpose for everything. God must have a plan. He's in control to try to comfort those who've had something tragic happen in their life. But it often translates to, well, God did this to you. Sat with person after person in their grief and their loss. And they're trying to understand, well, why would God do this to me? Because this is the image of God that they have in their mind is that he is causing all things. But what we'll see as we dive into the person of Jesus, that this isn't how Jesus expresses his Godness. This view of God as a micromanager who's all controlling of every little thing, it's disempowering, can leave us feeling hopeless or to abdicate responsibility. So as you think about these four, I want you to actually have in your, in your head, where is it that I find myself being pulled towards. You can craft any of these images from Scripture. Reality is, if you go through your Bible and pull out verses and stories, you can create any of these false images of God when you leave out Jesus. But one of the things that we believe here that we believe is so foundational to our faith is that it all revolves around the person of Jesus. And so we can deconstruct all these other things and look at them through the person of Jesus. And we don't lose Jesus in the process. And so when we, when we look at Scripture... When we try to understand who God is and the character of God, as it says in Hebrews, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. It's the exact representation of his being. And so we're going to go through and see real quick how is it that Jesus rehabilitates these false perceptions that we have of God. First, absent Well, Jesus is not absent at all, but he is so, so very present. You think about as he sends his disciples out, he says, go and I am with you always. In the way that Jesus lived, he's present with people. He doesn't just appear on the Sabbath and teach up in the synagogues. No, he's at weddings and he's at funerals. He's walking on the street. He's at the well to get water. He's on the beach and in the boat. He's completely grounded in his humanity and fully present in our material world. He spoke to people's fears and desires in practical, tangible ways. And not only does Jesus do that then, but then he promises God's spirit with us. As he says in John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth goes on, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus reveals and he rehabilitates that misconception for us, revealing that God is not absent, but God is close. 
God is present, concerned with, and aware, not just of my inner spiritual reality, but my every single day life. Jesus rehabilitates that angry, demanding judge as well. Often when we have that picture, we think that God is disgusted with us and so disappointed by our sin and sinners that he can't be anywhere near it. I know there's so many of us that have heard that phrase, that God can't be in the presence of sin, that he can't stand us. And it's true that our sin grieves God. But look what is actually spoken about the person of Jesus in Mark. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, he asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The exact representation of God isn't disgusted by them, but no sharing a meal with them. He's not yelling at them. He's not punishing them. Jesus puts his reputation on the line over and over again to be with those who were failing, who were living in destructive ways. He came to people in their brokenness, and he offers them grace and a new way of living, constantly pursuing people. If punishments and violence could fix what's wrong with us, then Jesus died for nothing. If fear, you don't stop sinning or you're going to go to hell. Guilt, your behavior is inexcusable. Shame, you are bad and wrong. We're sufficient motivation to lead a life pleasing to God. Then Christ died for nothing. Because Jesus comes to save us from our guilt and our shame and our fear. Why would he use the very things that he came to free us from as motivators for our obedience and holiness There's a person who uses guilt and shame and fear to motivate your behavior, but it's not God. It's the enemy. Jesus' interactions with people exposed their sin, not to guilt and shame them, but to offer them a new way of life in freedom and in light. Knowing that their sin, their distrust in God, their rejection of God's love, it was keeping them in bondage and destruction. Jesus goes on, and he rehabilitates our image also of this awesome doting grandfather God. See, there's a difference between God being for you and loving you and being on your side and giving you whatever you want when you want it. We've all met those children who have been given that. It's not a good thing. He's good, and he gives us what we need which was often to expose the sin of people and show them a different way. We know that when people are pursuing self-destructive behavior, it is not loving to just let them continue on their path. And this is the picture of God that is rehabilitated and reconstructed in the person of Jesus where he communicates he won't be swayed just because someone desires something. We see that when Jesus is explaining to Peter that he's going to be killed. Peter pulls Jesus aside and he's like, no, 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 Jesus, this is never going to happen to you. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. No, just because you want this doesn't mean that this is what needs to happen. You don't have the mind in mind the concerns of God. You merely have human concerns. Jesus rehabilitates and reconstructs that doting grandfather image of God by showing us and giving us exactly what we need, not always what we want. 
He redirects, he disciplines, and he tells the truth. And lastly, Jesus rehabilitates and reconstructs that all-controlling, deterministic micromanager God. Because Jesus is ruthless about helping people own their own decisions and desires. Jesus does not force himself on anyone, but comes and offers people the opportunity to choose him or not. He doesn't control their actions. Even the last night when he sits with Judas, he looks at him and says, go and do what you're going to do. He doesn't shame. He doesn't convince otherwise, but he empowers people to know this is your choice that you are making. He doesn't argue, doesn't try and convince people they're wrong. He proclaims good news and leaves people with their choice which reveals our desires, which reveals what it is we actually want. Because God isn't after robots. He's after people that he can empower with his authority. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus, even as he trains up his disciples and sends them out. It was not by controlling every single action, but instead empowering people to make their choices, offering his full self. This foundational picture and image that we have of God is so important, and there are so many of us who, if we're honest, we realize that we have constructed images of God that, sure, yes, like I said, you could pull them from Scripture, but they're not real. They're not true. And as if you bring your full self to your full life, and as you go through life, if you have these images of God, they don't hold up. And it's not good news. The demanding judge God is not good news. The doting grandfather who gives you everything you ever wanted with no consequence and no suffering and no struggle is not good news. A God who doesn't give you any authority over your own life is not good news. And a God who couldn't be bothered by the cares of your life is not good news, but the person of Jesus is over and over again good news. And it's no more clearly displayed than what we see on the cross. He offers him his full self. He gives the option for people to choose him. He says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing continuing to love, fully present in his humanity. And so that is our foundational paradigm here at Mosaic through which we view all other truths about Scripture, through which we build our whole faith from, is primarily the person of Jesus and primarily the way that Jesus' love is displayed and expressed on the cross. It's one of the reasons that I love that we come to the table and we celebrate communion almost every week at Mosaic. We come back and we say, no, this is the true character of God. This is the true heart 
of our creator, that he's willing to offer himself so fully that we might be able to choose his love. You pray with me, Heavenly Father, good Father, who is both Father and Mother to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us have the courage to deconstruct and pull apart the places that we have constructed false images of who you are. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so captured and enamored by Jesus, that all other things can fall away. It's in Jesus' holy and precious and powerful name we pray. Amen.